I interviewed Steve Scott before, who's been an anchor at WCBS News Radio for several years, and he's now a proud college graduate. Well, first of all, you are in New York City. What is New York City right? What is it like right now? Oh, well, it's been pretty crazy for a couple of months. Um, I mean, it's a city of 8.6 million people, but it's basically deserted. Uh, Stores are closed. Restaurants are closed. Coffee shops are closed. Office buildings are closed. Uh, You see very, very few people on the street, at least compared to normal uh, in New York. Um, Not a whole lot of complaints, though. I know other cities, there have been you know, people marching on the state capitol and saying, open us up now. You don't see that here because we've had, you know, so many people who have died. Um, I think people get how serious it is. And, you know, for the most part, they're adhering to the stay at home. You know, you don't always see everybody wearing face coverings uh, like they're supposed to. But, you know, majority of people are really. So, um, you know, there's I think there's an understanding here because of what we've been going through and the, you know, the hor- uh, horrendous number of deaths that uh, that people pretty much get it. And what is New York usually like on a day like today? Today, it's during the day. It's a Friday. Yeah, it's a spring Friday. I mean, it's been raining a little bit, but it's you know decent enough where it would be packed with people. Uh, the streets would be packed uh, with cars. The sidewalks would be packed with pedestrians. Uh, typically on a Friday, people try to escape a little bit early like they do in other cities, maybe to start their weekend a little bit early. But there are no people to escape early. And, you know, a lot of people who are working at home or have been furloughed, quite frankly, it doesn't matter to them if it's Friday, Thursday, Tuesday, whatever. Uh, it's just another day. So that element is entirely gone. It's it's. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit eerie. I think we've gotten used to it. The first few days when they shut it down, you know, I'd go out and stand in the middle of a major street, a four lane street, and just stand out in the middle of it and, and be amazed that there are uh, no cars, no taxis running me down or anything like that. But, um, you know, we're used to it now. And uh, I guess now it's going to it's going to be a little strange when we go back to normal, whatever normal may look like and whenever that may be. Well, when do you work in Manhattan? I do. And I am one of a very few number of people at our radio station still going into the station every morning. I anchor the news starting at five o'clock in the morning. Um, I live in Jersey City, which is directly across the Hudson River uh, from where I work. In fact, if I go out the back door, I can actually see the building across the river where I work. Um, So most people are working remotely. Uh, We haven't furloughed people, but they really do have a lot of people working remotely. I'm one of the very few uh, people still going in. My wife drives me in every morning, 2.30 in the morning. She gets up with me and drives me in because she doesn't want me touching anything. She wants to minimize my exposure, and and I appreciate that. And then when I'm off the air after 10 o'clock, she comes back and picks me up and drives me home. Um, The good news is there's no traffic. So, uh, you know, really the drive back and forth isn't a problem. Normally, and, you know, and I keep using the word normal, uh, you know, back in the pre-pandemic days, I would, uh, you know, take a train at least one way or I'd take an Uber or something like that. But uh, I have my, uh, my wife's chauff- uh, chauffeur service uh, running exclusively for me now. What is your newsroom usually like? 
Well, it's usually bustling with, you know, a couple dozen people at least running around doing various things, the on-air people, the producers, um, the off-air assistants, the people who answer the phones, the people who edit audio, who take in feeds. We have a digital team. Um, we have production people. We have managers. Um, and just about all those people are gone. Um, when I arrive at the newsroom a little before 3 a.m., uh, to get started on my uh, my early day before I anchor at five, there is one guy in the newsroom uh, when I walk in. And when I walk in, I double the population of the newsroom. There's two of us. Um, but the peak that we'll have in at any one time now is maybe four. Uh, there might, like if one of the bosses uh, comes in, it might be five, but but really it's it's usually just three or four people uh, in the newsroom now. And it's, it's pretty quiet. And it's a little lonely, but at least I have so, some social interaction. My colleagues who are working from home, um, you know, I, I know that they are, uh, they're starving to see uh, the newsroom again and, and see their teammates again. And we look forward to the day when we might be able to, uh, to get some of the people back in the newsroom. Yeah, before this happened, before people had to work at home and before you were working with just a few people, did you guys actually think about the difference that people made? You know, I don't know if it's conscious. Um, I mean, you you appreciate what every member of the team does. Um, you know, in this day and age, if if not everyone is contributing or or necessary, you know, these this essential personnel is such a, a misnomer. I mean, everybody on our team uh, from the morning drive time anchor down to the person who answers the phone and, and takes in feeds. Everybody is essential. Um, but, you know, I, I think if the bosses thought that somebody, you know, wasn't absolutely necessary, they wouldn't have been there to begin with. So, I mean, I, we appreciate what everybody does. Um, now, I mean, we miss everybody. It's funny. I mean, we're kind of getting by in the newsroom with all the people who are working remotely. They are just doing an amazing job uh, working remotely on a system uh, that, that was set up on a shoestring within like 72 hours um, for uh, a couple of anchors to work remotely. All of our reporters are working remotely. Uh, newsroom personnel, producers, and things like that, all but a couple are working remotely. Uh, it really is amazing. So um, you know, we miss them. We're still getting their good work. Uh, we miss seeing them in the newsroom because we all like each other and we all get along and we're all getting, like I said earlier, a little, <laughs> a little starved for hu human companionship. Uh, and we look forward to uh, being together again. When we see, when we um, see the situation in New York, we literally see it because all we have to do is just look at a simple picture or you know, images on 60 Minutes or whatever, and it's horrible. But how do you describe the intensity of what's going on in New York through just words and audio? Yeah, intensity is a really good word. Um, I mean, it's palpable. You can sense it. Um, I can tell you that in the last week or so, two weeks maybe, I can sense that we've hit the plateau in New York and are now coming down the other side. That doesn't mean that we don't have more than 300 people dying of COVID-19 in the city every day. We do, but that's down from nearly 800 a day, um, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, but you can, 
you can feel the tension. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. When, I, when my wife drives me in in the morning and we're driving down 7th Avenue toward the radio station, there is a, uh, a small hospital that we pass. And that hospital has what I know to be a refrigerator trailer parked outside. You can see the refrigeration unit um, on the trailer. And there's a very discreet canopy type tent that leads from the ground level up, uh, you know, to the, the level of inside this trailer. It's, it's a trailer similar that would be pulled, uh, you know, by a big rig. Um, it's that size. And every morning we drive by there and I look at it as we drive by and I know what's in that trailer. Um, I don't know the who's, I don't know who they were, but I know that there are bodies in that trailer and, you know, I don't take pictures of it or anything, but I have a mental picture, you know, and I, I just look at it as I go by every day because, you know, Margaret, I, you know, those were somebody's parents or brother or sister or child. I mean, this is not just an old person's illnesses we're learning. There are healthy people, um, you know, in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who are, are dying. And I just, I go by that trailer. And this is a small hospital with just one trailer. Um, at the peak of this thing, there were some hospitals, uh, public hospitals in the city that had three, four, five, six, seven of these refrigerated trailers parked outside. And it's tragic because you know, as I'm looking out the window as my wife is driving, my, my mind wanders a little bit and, and I, you know, I think about who might be in there and, and who is grieving somebody who is unceremoniously being stored in a refrigerated truck because right now there's nowhere else to put them. So, I mean, that's, that's something that hits me every morning and it sticks with me um, every day and even as I'm talking to you now. Uh, it's it's something that you can't get out of your mind. When this first started, um, when you know, first we heard about it, you know, it was happening abroad, and then it was coming to New York. What it, were you guys thinking? You know, it's interesting. I had listened to the New York Times Daily podcast in I don't know if it was January. It might have been early February. I don't know about you, but the months are flying by and yet dragging at the same time. Uh, sometimes I forget what month it is. Um, but I was listening to the New York Times podcast, and they had their health writer, a really, really smart and educated guy. And he said, and this is before it had even arrived in New York. I don't think there was even a confirmed case here. And he said, you know, I believe that while you, talking to the listener, probably won't die, people you know probably will die. And I was, I was walking to my train when I listened to that and I actually backed it up, you know, 15 seconds on the playback of the podcast because I wanted to make sure I heard him right. You probably won't die, but it's likely that somebody you know will die. And that was a couple months ago. And, uh, you know, that's what has come true. I'm still here, um, you know, but, but people in my orbit have died. I was pretty shocked when I first heard that. I thought, oh, come on, we don't even have any cases here yet. Um, it turned out to be very prescient. He was, he was right on target with it. And, you know, I, I actually took it pretty seriously, this whole thing, from the early on. I mean, 
at one point, I think New York had a total of 90 cases and the mayor was holding a news conference and he said, you know, by the end of this week, we're going to have a thousand. And that was jarring because, you know, that's, that's a huge, that's a tenfold increase or more, 11 fold in, increase. Well, sure enough, within a week we had more than a thousand and now it's gone on to the end of the, uh, tens of thousands dead and, and hundreds of thousands infected. And the mayor that day, Bill de Blasio said, we need a wartime mentality. In other words, you're going to be inconvenienced because of this. You most certainly are, but you can't look at it that way. America's greatest generation in World War II, yeah, they were inconvenienced, but they didn't look at it that way. They looked at it as we are in a war and we have to do what we need to do to survive. And I think that that has, has played out as well. And I've tried to keep that mindset. And that helped me from very early on when it's like, oh, my favorite restaurant won't deliver anymore. Oh, my Starbucks is closed. You know, I, I right away, I stopped feeling sorry for myself and the inconvenience and keep telling myself wartime mentality, don't complain just get through it. And I think the people who have accepted that train of thought might be dealing with this better than others. And I think many in New York have, um, I'll hazard to say most, because again, we don't have people marching in the streets uh, saying, you know, reopen our economy. Everybody is suffering here. I mean, it's, it's New York has never seen anything like this uh, for such a prolonged period of time. Yet nobody's taking to the streets with civil disobedience or marching on their state capitol uh, with a gun demanding they be reopened because they understand how serious it is and, and the consequences of rushing into it. So, you know, like other wars, we're just trying to survive and come out the other side. Did they figure out why it spread so quickly? Well, I think in New York, one reason. Well, I'll go through a couple of reasons. I think one is population density. There is no city in, in America that is even close to the population density of New York City. I mean, you know, people live on top of each other here, basically. And, if, you know, people walk through Times Square, it's shoulder to shoulder with thousands of people. And even just walking down the sidewalk on a, a work day back when things are normal, you, you know, there is no social distancing. The sidewalks are packed and everything is packed. The Starbucks is packed. The lunch counter is packed. The line for the food truck outside your office is packed. You're just around people all the time. And, you know, early on, I think it spread very quickly because of, of the population uh, density. You look in other states that, that are, are really wide open, cities that aren't as densely populated, and they have cases, but it, it really hasn't exploded per capita like it has in New York. They, they've done some of the antibody testing here, and it appears just on the first sampling of about 7,500 people that about 25% of people in New York City uh, have the antibody, meaning at some point they were exposed to the coronavirus. Um, most of them probably didn't even uh, know it. Uh, they were asymptomatic or they thought they had a cold. I myself had a really bad cold right around the first of the year, late to December into early January. I didn't miss any work. I had some coworkers. It was going around the newsroom because you know, we are kind of like a Petri dish sometime in there. And it was going around the newsroom. A few people missed a few days because of this really bad cold. Um, 
but you know, nobody ended up in the hospital or anything. And now some of us who went through that are coming to work and, and we're not getting sick now. And we have a theory that, you know, what went around the newsroom may well have been the virus. I mean, the virus existed before it was given a name and, and all these orders were put out about social distancing. Um, it was here. And so we wonder if, if maybe we had mild cases of it. So the, the density is one thing. And also New York was very quick to move to um, testing. And although they still aren't testing as many people as they'd like, uh, testing here has, has really been a leader among states. And the more people you test, the more people uh, are going to test positive, obviously. And I think um, that has really raised the numbers as well. Well, it seems like there are a number of um, people, media people, especially in the New York area, that are featuring themselves in stories as the story. What do you think of that? You know, I, I, I suppose we can mention, you know, Chris Cuomo from CNN and later Chris's wife, uh, you know, got sick. Chris Cuomo is the, the younger brother of the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. You know, Chris is a, a, a popular media personality. Um, you know, viewers watch him. Viewers care about him. Um, you know, he, it'd be kind of hard to hide the fact, um, that he wasn't, you know, that he was, you know, ill. Uh, one thing I'm not sure I agree with is the fact that, that Chris stayed on television even while he was ill. Now he didn't end up in the hospital. He had, I guess what they call mild to moderate uh, symptoms. I mean, he was, he wasn't feeling very well for, for quite a while. Uh, but he didn't need to be hospitalized, didn't need to be ventilated, anything like that. And I do understand the criticism of some that CNN leaving Chris on the air while he was sick, working while he was sick, may send the wrong message that even if you're sick, you need to work. I mean, that's not the case. If you're sick, now he was isolated in his basement. He's able to broadcast from his basement. But it just, you know, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with critics who say that he shouldn't have been working. If you're sick, don't work because of the message it sends to other people who may watch and say, well, you know what? I'm not feeling very good, but I need to work too, just like Chris Cuomo, so I'm going to go to work. I'm not blaming Chris, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm also not going to disagree completely with those who think that that was a bad idea. I mean, there are others who uh, in media in New York have identified themselves as, as having the virus. Um, most of them stay out of the public eye. Maybe they're on Twitter a little bit, um, you know, kind of recounting how things are going for them. I don't have a problem for that because they're public figures and, you know, they are still journalists and part of the job is to, to tell stories and educate people. And uh, that's what I think the majority of those uh, journalists here who have come down with it, who have decided to go public with it. I, you know, I think that's what they're doing. But what about the people, let's say, I can understand why he was on the air because he was sick and people care and so forth. But what about people who they're not sick at all, but they're, they're saying, hey, look, I'm at home, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And it's not just in New York, but across the nation. What do you think about when the journalists make themselves the story like that? Watching the TV news, I mean, the, the stations here in New York, and I don't know if it's uh, the same way back in Illinois, I imagine it might be, have had uh, anchors and reporters uh, working remotely. The CBS Broadcast Center, where you know it's the, the hub of CBS News in New York, 
um, actually was closed for well over a month um, because they had an outbreak there. One CBS News employee actually died. Um, so a lot of the anchors are, are working from home. At this point, I don't know that you need to say, you know, I'm John Doe anchoring from home today as we practice social distancing. I think viewers or on the radio listeners get it. They can see that you're not on the set. They can see that you are sitting in your den with photos of your family behind you. I, I don't know that you need to come right out and say, you know, I'm reporting from home today uh, as we try to practice social distancing. It's like, yeah, everybody's been doing that for a month now. Maybe early on when they were first, uh, you know, doing it, kind of explaining why people are seeing you in a, a different environment. Okay, that's okay when this term social distancing uh, first came up. Okay, but, you know, how long has it been now? A couple of months. So, um you know, I'm not going to criticize anybody in particular because everybody's doing the best job that they can. And sometimes, um, you know, they're doing what their bosses tell them to do. But, you know, we have anchors on the radio station at WCBS uh, who are anchoring from home. And, you know, outside of an occasional reference to, you know, one of the anchors saying, yeah, I'm looking out the window here in the New Jersey news bunker and I see rain falling, you know, something like that. We don't make a big deal about who's at home and, and who's not. On the radio, it actually sounds about the same. You really can't, unless you have a really fine ear, uh, you can't really tell uh, if somebody's in the studio or not. So, um, you know, we're, we're really not making a big deal about it, especially now that we've been doing this for a couple of months. Yeah, what do you think about the difference between uh, radio and TV in terms of reporting and journalism? Well, I mean, I'd like to think that they are more alike than than they are different, uh, especially uh, at the local level. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to get into critiquing the national news and how they trumpet everything with breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. Um, you know, I, I think that that term has been so diluted, like the little boy who cried wolf, that the words breaking news don't mean a whole lot to viewers or listeners anymore. Um, and then when actual breaking news comes along and you use it, people are like, oh, hum, here we go again. I think you see that more nationally. On the local level, I would like to think that it's, you know, it's it's pretty similar. We're just trying to find good stories and, and tell people what's going on. I mean, starting next week, they're going to shut down the New York City subways overnight, um, starting the middle of next week, so they can scrub them clean every day. And I mean, that's a really big deal. So we're telling that story, but you know, we're also telling how it's going to affect people and, and the alternative methods for getting around town. Um, I think early on both radio and television and, and print, I think we were all kind of fascinated with the numbers of, you know, X number of new cases reported today. And we have this number of, of new deaths and we were really fascinated with those numbers because they were new. Again, now, you know, just like war reporting, we're, we're into this a few months and we're not fascinated by the numbers anymore. They are part of the story you have to tell, but now we try to tell those numbers more as a, a barometer of, are we still climbing up the mountain? Have we plateaued? Are we coming down uh, the other side? Uh, for instance, we've learned that 
new hospitalizations and people in ICU is a really good indicator of, of where we are. Those numbers have been falling, but the number of deaths sometimes lag behind that. And so you can have new hospitalizations and ICU admissions going down, but deaths could still be going up because those are people who have been very sick for a long time who are dying. And so we're trying to put those numbers into context and educate people, just explain kind of the way I did there that, you know, these are, are more than just raw numbers and here's how to understand them. And we also really try to stress that these numbers, I mean, we'd never want to say that, you know, after New York was peaking at nearly 800 COVID-19 deaths every day, that now we only have 300 deaths a day. Don't want to say only 300. Those are, those are 300 families who are, uh, who are mourning and who are suffering. So, you know, we try not to use uh, words uh, like that. I mean, eventually the number is going to be down to 30. And that's still going to be 30 families who are, uh, are suffering and mourning. So, you know, try to avoid the sensationalism, try to, to put context to the numbers that we give, and then just try to tell the stories of the heroes, the doctors, the nurses. Uh, today before I left work, I recorded an interview for next week with the uh, uh, chairman of the psychiatry department at a local teaching uh, hospital here in the, uh, the city about the stresses that, that medical people are going through. I mean, we just had one of the top ER doctors in the city. Uh, she ran the ER department at a hospital, took her own life because, you know, she had talked about the stresses of, of treating COVID-19 patients and coming down with the illness herself and then recovering and rushing back to work. And she took her own life. And, and so we're trying to tell the stories and help people understand what, uh, you know, what people are going through. Um, and find good stories, stories of kindness. There are so many stories of people doing kind things out there. We had the story on the radio the other day of, of a kid who called his teacher and said, I've been diagnosed with COVID-19. I think I'm going to be okay. My mom has it. My dad has it. And my mom is about to have a baby. And the mom had the baby and the family didn't know what they were going to do. The teacher took in the baby and is taking care of the baby until mom and dad, you know, until the household is clean and they're able to uh, take care of the baby, baby without risk of infection. So selfless. It's just an amazing story that a teacher would do that. Not an aunt or an uncle or grandma. This is a teacher, um, a stranger to the family, other than the fact that they instruct the child, was willing to step forward and do this. And there are so many of these stories. Um, those are the ones that were we're trying to tell and, and maybe encourage goodness in others as we all, you know, seek out, what's that term? Seek out our better angels. Well, you know, the advantage that the um, TV and online video people have is that they can just show like in five seconds, the teacher taking the baby, for instance, but then you as a radio person, you have to write it and describe it. So how literally do you create compelling stories just through the written word and through audio? Well, we try to let them tell the story. You know, a, a good reporter knows that the fewer words that they speak in the story, chances are the better the story is going to be because it means that the people about whom they're reporting are actually telling the story. Um, you know, so our reporters, again, who are working remotely, whether it's, you know, on the phone or 
you know, social distancing when they are out in the field, wearing masks, wearing gloves, you know, using a telescoping uh, uh, microphones uh, uh, holder to reach out and, and talk to people. You know, let them tell the stories. People want to talk right now. Um, people, you know, if something good is happening or something bad is happening. I mean, listen to me ramble here, Margaret. I mean, we want to talk about this because this is something like we've never seen in our lives. And, and with all the bad, we are seeing good. And it's just, we want to share that and, and people want to share that. And, you know, we're finding no shortage of goodness and, and good stories to tell. Um, and it's, it's really nice to be able to put those on the air. I mean, that, that makes you feel good when you're telling good stories like that. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And I just finished teaching a podcasting class at Columbia College, and I found out that I'm going to teach there in the fall, too, though I don't know if the classes will remain online. How do you get the high-profile people who, you know, like the governor and the mayor, who the national media are covering, how do you get them to talk to you guys? How do they find the time? Well, uh, we have the advantage of um, we know them. I mean, you know, Andrew Cuomo is in his third term of governor of New York. And, you know, I, I you know, I've known Andrew Cuomo since he was uh, uh, the attorney general for New York before he was governor. I mean, once upon a time, he was uh, uh, Bill Clinton's HUD secretary. I mean, you know, we've we've known Andrew Cuomo for years he's been the governor like i said now in his in his third term he knows us we know him um sometimes his office uh will call us or the we cover three states new york new jersey and connecticut uh the governor of new jersey will you know he knows us he knows that i live in new jersey that i'm one of his guys and i mean we have a standing weekly uh on air chat live with the governor of connecticut um, we are a good way for them to get news and information out. And because we are local and because we've known them in good times and bad, because I, you know, dealt with Andrew Cuomo during um, Superstorm Sandy uh, or, you know, any other big events that have happened, um, you know, I think there's a I don't know if it's a comfort level or a trust level, maybe it's a trust level that, listen, we're just doing, we're both doing our jobs and, you know, we need to ask questions. You need to give us information. Um, we're not going to blindside them. I know there is gotcha media out there. I don't do that. My station doesn't do that. Um, the governor knows that the governors, I should say, they all know that because they know us. They know that we, you know, why we may ask uh, pointed questions and we may ask the question again, if we don't get it, a good answer the first time, they know that we're not going to, uh, you know, suddenly throw some sort of gotcha situation at them. So, you know, um, there's a working relationship and, and a, a little bit of a comfort zone, I think, um, with both sides. Well, you know, you, um, of course, you're in the mar number one market where it is the hottest, most unfortunate story going on right now, possibly of our entire lifetime, because it's a horrible pandemic and people are dying and so forth. But you used to work in Chicago and Illinois. So, I mean, my gosh, like, what do you think about your experience now versus working here? Well, on 9-11, I was on the air anchoring the news on WLS radio 
for Don and Roma on September 11th, 2001. I was anchoring the news uh, when that story unfolded. And, you know, ABC, uh, which owned WLS at the time, um, quickly brought me to New York and I kind of became an extra network correspondent here. Um, but, you know, I've we've seen so many of these tragedies, again, whether it's you know, 9-11 or, or Superstorm Sandy or the financial crisis of 2008 or when there have been, you know, spates of, of cops being shot. You know, there's a period a few years ago where there's just a whole series of, of cop shootings across the country that, that really weighed on us. Um, you know, I think the experience that I, you know, gained working in Chicago on, on breaking news, obviously a lot of big breaking news happens in Chicago. Um, you know, that, that was part of my learning and growing experience that prepared me for what I'm doing now. I mean, I, I still have a lot of friends in Illinois. And so I, you know, I keep an eye or half an eye on what's going on in Illinois as far as, uh, you know, COVID-19. And I, you know, I watch, uh, uh, your governor Pritzker, um, you know, when he holds his briefings, the way he goes about things, I think he's, you know, leaving politics out of out of it. But I think he's being a a, a solid leader, just like you could say for the three governors uh, that I cover here. Again, leaving uh, you know political leanings out of it. Um, you know, it's I found it interesting that I think per capita infection rate in Illinois, you know, Cook is up there, and one of the collar counties is up there, but like two of the top five per capita infection rates are tiny downstate counties where there have been, um, you know, in, infection kind of explosions within the population there. Um, I found that very interesting because we don't have that so much here. It's, it's very high in New York City. I mean, if they're right that 25% of the population has the antibody, that means 2 million people in New York uh, had the coronavirus. Uh, whether they knew it or not, and Long Island and the counties around New York City, it's it's very high as well. But if you get into upstate New York, which is kind of the equivalent of what you would call downstate Illinois, the rate is something like three percent have the antibodies. So we're not seeing a lot of of cases in upstate New York. Yet when I look at Illinois, I, I do find it really interesting, and I don't know enough about Illinois anymore to hazard a guess as to why. But to see that there are you know, smaller markets in downstate, smaller cities, I should say, towns and in and counties in in downstate Illinois that are uh, having high per capita infection rates. And I'm I'm sure the experts may know why that is, and I'm sure history will document it. But I'll be really curious to see how that plays out. Well, how did you get to New York as a news person? Interstate eighty. Uh, <laughs> no, I I was working for WLS and ABC in 2006 and in the summer of 2006 um the then program director at wcbs in new york uh, had an opening for a news anchor there were a couple of people at wcbs who knew me uh through the years uh one of them had been a colleague at abc back in the day another guy i'd met just through other channels and we knew each other and ended up uh, now working together very closely here um, they, I think mentioned, uh, you know, if you're looking for somebody, there's a guy in Chicago who 
uh, you know, he's pretty good. You might want to check him out. And also at that time, I worked at, at WLS, which was a competitor to WBBM. Now, BBM obviously dominates uh, news coverage in Chicago as far as radio goes. But back in the day, our little newsroom at WLS, we did a pretty good job. We, uh, we were real proud of ourselves with, you know, three or four people compared to all the people BBM had back in the day. And, uh, you know, if, <laughs> if getting me out of Chicago helped, uh, helped the station, the CBS station there, BBM, uh, then maybe that was an added bonus. I don't know, but it's, it's been great, uh, being in New York. I love New York. I love the people I work with. Um, and, uh, I, I have great admiration for, uh, WBBM. I know that they are, uh, doing a fantastic job under Ron Gleason and, and are dominating in the ratings right now. And I have friends who work there and I'm really proud of the great work that, that they're doing. Just like I think they're proud of the work that we're doing in New York and our colleagues uh, in LA and San Francisco and everywhere else. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a big business, but it's a small world. And, and I guess if, if you do a decent enough job or if you're really bad, uh, both ends of the spectrum, your name kind of gets around. And that's kind of how I ended up here in uh, uh, 2006. My first day at WCBS was actually September 11th, 2006, the fifth anniversary of uh, the terror attack. So I, I never forget my anniversary date. Okay, well, you know, you're very well employed and you have a full-time job, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you can say, yeah, you know, it's it's possible to... Um, make it in the business but what about people who don't have that like they you know how how long should they try before they give up or what should they do if they can't achieve that you know i first of all i will be the last person who would ever suggest that someone give up i mean i think that's a a very personal decision that people have to make um there were a couple times when i worked at wls back in the day that um twice local hospitals in Chicago had openings on their PR staff. And uh, they reached out to me and asked me if I would want to work for the hospital, you know, working nine to five, Monday through Friday, uh, writing press releases and, you know, speaking publicly to the media if something needed to be said. And I'll tell you what, they were offering more money than I made at WLS at the time. And there was no more getting up at two in the morning and going on the air at five in the morning uh, on the radio. But I, I just loved it too much. I couldn't, I couldn't walk away from what I was doing. And so I kept doing it and, and it has worked out well for me and I'm happy for that. But I would never, I would never tell somebody, um, you can't do this. When I was young in college, I was working uh, or going to school at San Jose State in California. And I was looking to pick up some you know, part-time, do news on the weekend type things. And there were two radio stations in two relatively small cities um, that in California that told me, almost like they were reading from the same talking points, listen, you're not going to make it in this business. You're still in school. There's time to change your major. You should change your major and look to do something else because you're not going to succeed in radio. Fortunately for me, I was either too pig-headed um, or too proud to accept what they were saying, and I stuck with it, and it's worked out okay for me. But I, you know, I have never forgotten those two radio stations. I may have forgotten the names of the program directors, but I still remember the 
call letters. Um, I think the stations still exist in some form or another. I've never forgotten that. And, and, you know, I share that message with anybody, you know, who wants to listen, you know, twice, they tried to tell me you're not going to make it. You're not good enough. Um, what if I had listened? I have no idea, Margaret, what I'd be doing now. I, I don't know. People ask me all the time, oh, if you hadn't gotten into you know, broadcast journalism, what would you be doing? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I certainly wasn't going to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. I don't think I was smart enough to do that. Um, you know, I, I, I have no idea. So I, I can't tell you how my life would have gone if I had said, oh, okay, yeah, I suppose they're right. Maybe I should look for something else. Um, I would say that a person should stick with it until they in their own heart say, you know what, for whatever reason, whether it's I, I don't have the talent or the opportunities just aren't lining up right now, or you know what, I've got a spouse and two kids and a mortgage to pay and I need a, a steadier job, um, you know, then maybe you have to do something else. Then maybe you take the hospital PR job or some other public relations job or, or something like that. But, you know, it, that's such a personal individual decision. And I think it, you know, it's, it's like anybody in any business who, if they ever get to the point where they have to say, I can't do this anymore, or it just doesn't look like I'm going to make it in this business. I better do something else. Um, boy, that's just, that's such a hard decision to make. And, and so painful to make. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been very fortunate. I've been in radio now uh, for around 40 years. And I can say that I have never been unemployed. I mean, just the stars have aligned and things have worked out. And, you know, I've been let go from jobs, but then somebody else calls and says, okay, do you want to start on Monday? And I'm like, okay. Um, and, you know, I'm going well at WLS. That station has changed a lot through the years. I don't know exactly what they're doing for news now. Um, you know, what if, what if New York hadn't called and, and I came to CBS and stayed there? Would, you know, would I still be in the business? I, I don't know. So it's very personal. I would just tell people, do the best you can. And, you know, if your heart tells you, and maybe your bank account, I can't do this, I've got to do something else. Well, then, then you make that difficult decision. Well, do you have advice for people who want to um, get into journalism? Sure, this is a great time to get into journalism. I mean, you know, journalism has changed a lot from when I first started way back in the day. You know, uh, radio reporters back then were basically radio reporters. That's what you did. Now, you know, I, I take part in podcasts and I, you know, do videos and I put videos up on social media encouraging people to listen to the station or, you know, I go on Twitter and I uh, tease an interview that I'm going to be having on the radio station, you know, in a few minutes or, you know, photos for the web or whatever. I mean, all the different things. Uh, it, it really is a, a multifaceted, multi-skilled type of, of profession now. So the advice that I would have, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on two things and you can you know, uh, dig for more if you, if you want. One is just learn how to write. Write, 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 write. Because everything is based on writing. Whether you're a, a print or web or television or radio journalist, everything is reliant on your writing. So 
hone that craft, learn to tell good stories, learn to write, you know, in, in a style that's appropriate uh, for print if you're a print person or broadcast if you're a broadcast person, you know, use to work, uh, learn to use, um, you know, short sentences and uh, words that people understand. Don't try to be the smartest person in the world with your writing. I, writing is just so important. It is amazing how many young people come out of college and even journalism school who are terrible writers and will look at each other, you know, look at the boss or will look at each other and it's like, do they not teach writing anymore? And I know they do, and it's hard. It's much harder to be a good writer than a bad writer, but write, write, write. That's, that's the first thing I would say because everything depends on writing. The second thing is just learn as many skills as you can. And I think young people starting out right now, they have a great advantage compared to where I was. Uh, you know, I, I just talked about all the different things that I do on the web and podcasts and shooting video and, and taking photos and, and all that different things, social media. I had to learn all that stuff because that didn't exist when I was just starting out. You didn't have a a phone, a computer that you held in your hand and talked into as a, a telephone. We, we didn't have any of that uh, back in the day. So I've had to learn that to stay relevant through the years. Now the young people just starting out, you know, they were virtually born with an iPhone in their hand and they have these skills and they can multitask and they can do the social media. They really understand how to uh, peruse websites for news and, and how to shoot video and how to take photos and things like that. So just uh, the more skills that you can bring to an interview, uh, if, if you're trying to get hired, that you can tell the boss, listen, I can do this and I can do this and this and this and this and this, as opposed to, well, I'm a radio reporter. I mean, the more things you can do, the more valuable you are. Staffs are contracting these days. I mean, our newsroom, even, you know, pre-pandemic, our new staff doesn't have as many people as it did, uh, you know, 14 years ago when I started there. So you're doing more with fewer. So the more you can learn, the more skills you can learn, the more uh, cards you can bring to the table, the more valuable you are going to be. You know, I consider myself really lucky. I mentioned earlier that, you know, I've been doing this for about 40 years and I've never been unemployed. And, and you know, that's that doesn't make me any more talented or smarter than anybody else. It's, it's just things played out. The, like I said, the stars were aligned um, and things worked out. So, you know, I feel very fortunate. Um, I I was in Chicago over 20 years doing news on the radio, and now I'm in my 14th year uh, at WCBS in, in New York doing news on the radio, and I kind of have a personal goal. I don't know that anybody has ever done 20 in Chicago and 20 in New York, or 20 in LA and 20 in Chicago, you know, 20 years in, in two markets, let alone top markets. And maybe somebody has, I don't know, but it's kind of a little goal. I'm, you know, I'm still six years away from achieving the 20 in New York and who knows what may happen, but that's kind of a, you know, a little goal that I have of trying to achieve that. Most of the time, if you stay 20 years in a particular city, you're so entrenched that uh, you don't want to leave. Well, I didn't get that <laughs> in 2006 and, and left Chicago, left 
everything I knew and came to New York and it's working out here. And I'd, uh, I'd love to, when I hang it up someday and I'm, I'm, I still love this. So I'm a long ways from leaving voluntarily, but I would love to say, you know what? I was able to put in 20 years in a great market in Chicago, a great radio market, a great news city. Um, you know, and, and I was able to put in 20 in New York or, or more than 20 in New York. I mean, that's, that's kind of a goal. And one other thing that I would pass along is that um, as far as like education, it's never too late. Uh, I'll tell you this. When I was going to San Jose State, um, I quickly uh, proved to be a better radio student than I was student student. Uh, I, you know, I, I wasn't the greatest in the, in the classroom. I'd rather hang out at the college radio station, but I made it to, to be a senior. I had senior standing and got an offer to do news in San Jose full time, anchoring the morning news at a radio station for the princely sum of $10,700 a year. And I'm like, well, this is what I'm going to school for. This is what I want to do. So I, I told myself, you know what? I'm going to take the job and I'm going to stop going to school full time. And, you know, I'm a senior. It won't, you know, I'll get the classes finished off. Well, Margaret, fast forward 40 years, just in the past six months, I have finally completed my coursework at San Jose state to graduate, to get so my degree. All, so all this time that you were extremely successful, making good money, you did not have a college degree. I did not. No. I mean, I, I'm fortunate that this isn't accounting or, you know, some sort of tech industry where maybe, you know, the, the fancy degree means something or a law degree or a medical degree. Broadcasting and journalism is very much a what have you done for me lately type of business. What can you do for me now? But no, I mean, I, you know, I've been a college dropout since <laughs> 1983, 84, something like that, I think is probably maybe 85. I took a class, but I never, I never finished. And I think it was last year, 19, uh, I'm sorry, 2019, was 40 years since I graduated from high school and 40 years from when I first walked onto the San Jose State campus. And it got me thinking about, you know, this, this has always kind of hung over me, just a personal thing of, of something that I didn't finish. And I, you know, I thought about starting and I'd reach out to San Jose State and, well, here's kind of what you need to do. And then I'd I'd drop it. And then five years later, I'd be like, well, you know, it'd be nice if I could finish. And, and I wouldn't get anywhere. I'd drop it. But this year, for some reason, I was motivated. And I, um, you know, I, I took the step. I actually wrote to the president of San Jose State University, the president of the school, and she emailed me right back. And she said, I love your story. Let's drag you across the finish line. And she handed me off to a couple of wonderful deans at San Jose State. Who, who were great figuring out exactly what I needed to do. And I finished my degree actually uh, at Hofstra University on Long Island, uh, doing this, the coursework there and transferring it to San Jose State. So, you know, most college students are on a four-year plan. I was on the 40-year plan. Um, now, the bad news is because of the pandemic, there's no commencement. I was going to go to California. You better believe I was going to walk across that stage with a big grin on my face. There's no commencement, but you know, it's, it's knowing that I was able to finish it and uh, you know, the diploma will come in the mail and maybe there will be a commencement in the, the fall or the, 
winter or maybe next uh, the following uh, spring or something like that. But uh, May 22nd was the day that I was going to be in San Jose to walk across the stage. I'll miss that, but I can get over that just knowing that I finished. And so, you know, the message, the moral of the story is if there is something in your life, whether it's education or something that you wanted to accomplish, you know, maybe you wanted to <laughs> learn to juggle or ride a unicycle or pilot an airplane or finish your college degree. It's never too late. And, you know, uh, it, it wasn't too late for me to go back. And with the help of some uh, really good people, I've been able to finish that. And I, I have to tell you, it doesn't make me any richer or any smarter. I'm not going to get paid anymore for having a college degree. Um, but it's, it's really important uh, to me because it's unfinished business that's, that's now finished. Well, you said for some reason, but can you figure out what really made you want to finish it? I think I always wanted to finish it. Um, you want to act on it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, early on when I was still in, in San Jose, I left San Jose in 86. So that's maybe two, two and a half, three years after I stopped going to school. I always thought, well, you know, I can take a night class. Well, I'm doing morning radio, getting up at three in the morning and going to work. I was not going to 7 p.m. night classes. That was, that was a fool's errand thinking that I could do that. Plus, I wasn't the most disciplined student in the world to begin with. I didn't have the greatest study habits. You know, I'm easily distracted. I'm one of those people who says, oh, squirrel or, or something shiny. And I get distracted and go off to do something else. So, um, you know, that, that just didn't work. And I thought about it through the years and I thought, you know, you know, I, I would like to finish while my parents are still alive because they're the ones who sent me off to college. And well, that didn't work. They've been gone for a long time. So Eventually, I, I really think it was the round number of 40 years when, you know, I told myself, okay, this is 40-year high school graduation. That means, you know, the August of, of 2019 was 40 years that I first walked onto the San Jose State campus and, and started as a freshman. And, you know, 39 years didn't do it. 38 didn't do it. 26 didn't do it. Maybe it was at round number 40. Um, and then meeting up with some really good people having that president at San Jose State email me right back and she goes, oh, this is awesome. We're going to do this. And then the dean's helping me and uh, my advisor at Hofstra University uh, on Long Island who helped me. Um, you know, I, I think it was the round number that got me started. And then just telling myself, listen, you can do this. And then some really, really good people, including my wife, all of them, you know, it's like we tied a rope around me and they all grabbed the rope and they're going to drag me across the finish line, kicking and, and screaming. So, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much what did it. I mean, had I skipped it, had the president not written back, um, had it become 41 years or 42 years, not such a, a round number, you know, I don't know. I can't say, but, um, it, it just worked out and, and I'm glad it did. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.